0: First, a quick word about my health. I'm doing pretty well. If you Google recovery from a stroke, I'm basically following that recovery timeline, line by line. I was talking with Bishop Michael Owen yesterday, and I shared that with him, and he laughed and said that I must be becoming truly liturgical. I'm following the script. And it's true enough. I am. I have... Pretty much all of the symptoms that I'm supposed to have, but I, I think they're diminishing day by day, or at least seem to be. So the good outweighs the bad. And I'm I'm grateful that things were not worse than they were. I'm especially grateful for all the wit the support that we've received. Not not only me, but my wife and our kids as well. There's really been incredible response from close friends, from family, and then from people that I haven't heard from in years, as well as people who were were there and I didn't know were there. So thank you all so much. I want to keep these reflections brief. I'm going to say just a few words about each of the passages culminating in the gospel text. The Old Testament reading for the day is Joshua 5. I won't take the time to read it. All I want to point out is the connection between the promise, today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt, and the change that comes about in Israel's life, that from that day they no longer receive manna, they eat the crops of the land, the crops that they have planted and harvested. And I think what this text bears witness to is the ways in which the, the being freed from shame, the, the cutting away or the shedding of disgrace is what actually liberates us into responsibility. This is the fundamental difference, the, the essential difference between the spirit's pressure on our lives and all other pressures. So I think we put pressure on ourselves, people put pressure on us, the systems of the world put pressures on us, nature puts pressure on us, but God's pressure on us is something altogether different, again, essentially different, and the Spirit's pressure, even though it is it is forceful in the way that God is forceful, it is liberating in a way that no creaturely pressure can be, and we often try to press people into responsibility. There, I, I often quote the line from Jacques Lul: the Spirit presses us into responsibility We often try to press people into responsibility by disgracing them, by shaming them, by threatening them with disgrace, leveraging their fear of being, of losing face as a way of getting them to act responsibly. I'm not sure that that's always entirely wrong. I'm sure that there are better and worse ways to enact that pressure, but It is not the same as the spirit's pressure, right? which is a rolling away of shame so that we are opened up to the future, a future we can collaborate in making. And the the ceasing of the manna is tied to the cutting away of the disgrace. If we come then to the psalm, Psalm 32, again, I'm not going to read it, I just want to draw attention to two lines and hold them together. One is a line from verse four. Your hand was heavy upon me day and night. And then verse eight, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. I think we have that same notion, this distinction between the pressure of God and all other pressures. God's hand is heavy upon us, but it's a sheltering hand. David Milch, who made NYPD Blue, a few years ago, he's suffering from dementia now, so pray for him and his family. When he was doing a retrospective a few years ago on his career as a writer and TV showrunner, and he was asked about his his characters who were often anti-heroes, not just complicated and not just flawed, but tragically flawed, tragically flawed. And Milt said that he had learned that the shadow in which his characters move is cast by the sheltering hand of God. I, I think of that line every time I read this psalm, right? And, and also every time I read Psalm 23, because the shadow that's cast in the in the veil of death is the shadow of the cross. It's the shadow of the one who is nailed to the cross. And that witnesses to... This hand of God that is heavy upon us, that is in fact never heavy-handed. Right, that God's pressures are essentially other than the pressures we can put on ourselves or that others can put on us, and in that way, they are—they hide us, right? They shelter us. You'll, You'll hear. We'll return to that that notion of hiding in just a moment when we get to the gospel text. But look. Then at the New Testament text, which is 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21, I just wanted to draw up a couple of details from the text. Paul begins by saying in this passage that we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we want to knew Christ in that way. And because Christ has altered his vision, like fundamentally shifted the way Paul apprehends the world. He sees all things differently, and therefore, at the end of the passage, Paul says, "We have been kind of brought into collaboration." I was going to say, "co-opted by God into at ambassadorial work, into into cooperation, to laboring with, collaborating with the one we are joint heirs with. That we we're yoked into the work Jesus is doing in the world, and." it's It's possible to do that work only insofar as we've had our way of looking changed. and we have our way of looking changed by looking to Jesus and seeing how all things change in him, right. So by turning our devotional, turning our devotion to him, casting our eyes on him, we have our vision changed and then we see the whole world differently. you know the old the old song, "Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. But that's true in a sense, but it it more needs to be said. That the things of this world now can be seen in their true light only because we've looked full in his wonderful face and and recognized in his face the glory of God as the humility of God and the delight God has in, in the creation God has made and in what we are making as God's creatures. So this, this shift that Paul has made makes it so that he can represent God well. So one way of putting this is we we can make God look good when we look to God and then look as God looks on the world. So we make God look good when we look to God in Christ and then look as God looks on the world. So with all that said, let me come to the gospel. One of the more familiar passages in the New Testament, in, in, in all of the Gospels, Jesus' story of the prodigal son, these two sons and their father. It's, it's familiar to us, and I don't want to brush aside what has become precious to us, not by any means. But I do think it's worth trying to read this story with fresh eyes standing in a new place. And so I, th- I think if you do pay attention to the movements of the story and to what is said and when it is said and who says it when it is said, it, it is, it's pretty illuminating, right? And, and cast light on a text that is already familiar to us. So the, the first is Jesus tells this parable because the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling. And so I, I think it's it's really important to remember this story is an answer, in a sense, to the grumbling of the Pharisees and scribes. And that grumbling should bring us back to the story of Israel in the wilderness when they're being given manna. The grumbling in the wilderness, right, is being echoed here by the scribes and Pharisees who are grumbling about the tax collectors and sinners who are coming near to listen to Jesus. They're grumbling about Jesus's openness to these unworthy men and women. And so Jesus, in answer to their grumbling, tells them this parable. A man has two sons, and the younger says to the father, "Father, give me the share of the property that belongs to me, that will belong to me." And the father divides his property between the two sons. Now, of course, nothing is said here about the mother. What has happened to her? Nothing is said to us about the backstory of this family. We don't know their names. Here's a father. The younger son asks for his share. And, of course, this should call up all kinds of stories, especially stories in Genesis of the younger supplanting the elder. The younger asks. The father gives it to both sons, Gives divides the property between them. And then a few days later, the younger son gathers all he has and travels to a distant country, goes to the far country. I, I think there's there's a kind of penetrating insight here into the psychology of abandonment, the psychology of breaking away from those we're bound to. And that I, I, I doubt very much that the younger son always meant to leave. At least I'm sure he wasn't consciously aware that that's what he was purposing to do. He didn't intentionally mislead his father, but his heart—I'm—I'm I'm sure, at least at some depth, unconsciously, his heart had already turned toward the far country. And so, once he has his share, he gathers and leaves. And when he's there, we're told he squandered his property in dissolute living, he, he in loose living. It. This is, it speaks, calls back the, the hiddenness of the psalm. We don't know what form this dissolution takes. We don't know how he lives loosely. It's easy to speculate, but I don't think we should speculate. We don't know what he did. I think it's just as likely that his looseness was ideological as it was immoral or perverse. I don't, I don't think we should speculate again, but there's no reason to assume that he was buying heroin on the street corner or as the older brother will say, spending it on prostitutes. We don't know. And we're we're kept from knowing for a reason. And it it recalls for me at least that scene in the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan has the confrontation with Edmund that, that reconciles Edmund to to his role as king and to the family were kept from knowing what is said there so he he lives unwisely he lives foolishly loosely and he spends everything on what we don't know and at that time a severe famine takes place right so the pressure of nature falls on this far country and he begins to to starve i mean he's he's in need and that need brings him to desperation, and he hires himself out to a citizen of that country. I don't know how much to make of the fact that he's assigned to feed the pigs, but probably is something here that is humiliating for him. We're, we're almost certainly meant to hear humiliation in, in this act, that he's so desperate, he's willing to submit to humiliation. And he would, we're told, he would gladly have filled himself with what the pigs were eating, with the slop the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything, right? That the the manna has ceased for him. No one is giving him anything, but he is in deep shame. So this, this is why, or at least a way of hearing what the Joshua text is saying to us, right? That the pressures that come on us from the world, the pressures we put on ourselves, the pressures that, nature puts on us the pressure that our neighbors put on us, that those those pressures shame us and they can cut us off from the manna in a sense, but they they can't make it so that we are able to live with the crops we are planting and harvesting. So in that moment of desperation, when no one will care for him, he comes to himself, right? He he comes aware of himself speaks to himself, and there, there is a lot of self-talk in this episode, as you know, and what he says is he compares himself to his father's hired hands. They have bread enough and more than enough, but I'm dying of hunger, so I will get up and go to my father and will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands, right? So there's, there's a rationalization here, and there is an assumption about how he is seen by his father that I think casts some light on why he left in the first place, why he felt that he needed to go to the far country. So he he assumes his father is concerned about worthiness, and that his father will not receive him again unless he throws himself on his father's mercy by humiliating himself even further and right? he's already humiliated in that he's caring for the pigs in the far country but he will humiliate himself even further and in that way hopefully move his father to pity so he sets off and comes to or goes to his father but while he's still far off and this is one of the lines that we love and rightly so his father sees him is filled with compassion and runs and puts his arms around him and kisses him. We often say that the father was standing looking for the son, but I'm not, I'm not sure that that is right. I think there is a kind of wisdom in the father letting the son go. There's, there's a way in which the father letting the son go is, is, is unlike our father, the heavenly father, the God of Jesus Christ. Who who does seek us out, right? And in, in, in one of the previous parables, right, the the good shepherd goes and finds the one lost sheep. So why doesn't the father do that here? Why doesn't he go and look for this son the way that the shepherd looked for the sheep or the way the woman looked for the coin? Well, I I think it, it's because there is a kind of searching that the father leaves room for the son to do with himself, and he does do that searching eventually and comes home and the father sees him coming and runs to him. Throws his arms around him, kisses him. Then the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So he, he does call him father but refuses to call himself son. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So this, this is a, he's caught, right? He's caught in a half-truth. He is still naming his father rightly, but he cannot name himself rightly, and therefore the the half-truth is is wholly untrue. He's still in shame, and so is not able to move from the wilderness into the promised land. He's not able to move into maturity because of what he's unable to say about himself. But the father, notice, does not respond to the son, but says to the slaves... Quick, bring a robe, the best one, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and rejoice. For this son of mine, and there he names him, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, we don't want to overlook the fact that there are slaves in this story and that this is a, a testament to the fact that this family. Still lives in a world that's not quite set to rights, and we can't we can't draw any kind of one to one correspondence between what happens in this story and with what God and what God is doing in our lives. But I think for now we we need to see the ways in which the Father includes the slaves in the celebration with his sons, so that you you've got a kind of tension here. The sons wrongly think of themselves as slaves, but the Father knows the distinction between sons and slaves, but includes the slaves in the celebration for his sons. So he says, get the fatted calf and kill him. And and, and you do have something here that I think does witness to the gospel in that the son thought he had to make a sacrifice of himself. But what the father does is make a sacrifice for the son. Get the fatted calf and kill it. And this, again, recalls stories in, in Genesis, especially the story of Abraham, Seeing the angels afar off, rushing to them, welcoming them to his tent, and killing the fatted calf for them. So I, I think this story is meant to be heard, among other things, as a, a kind of gloss or um, midrash on the stories in Genesis, specifically the story of Abraham hosting God. And let us eat and celebrate, he says. And they all celebrate. The older son is in the field. And I. I think this is such an astounding part of the story that often gets left off of our telling of it. We stop at the celebration, which is, I'm afraid to say, like a profoundly American thing to do. It's our our to, to reference Milch again. Our minds have been shaped by episodic television and by movie the arc of movies, and we resolve when we get the first chance to relax the, the first the first moment of resolve the story gives up gives us we often settle there happy to have had the resolve milch makes the point that this is why in the aftermath of 9-11 we we needed to see the war on television we needed to see our retaliation against those people or against someone we could easily think of as the ones to blame for having struck our lives in the ways that those terrorists did and that once we had the the bringing down of the statue of saddam in baghdad once we saw that on tv we resolved and even though the war would go on for another 20 years we had seen what we needed to see to move on be that as it may i I think it's it's easy to, to think that the story ends here and forget that actually the story is in, in some ways just beginning. It's just opening up. And it opens up to tell us about this elder son who's in the field. He comes, approaches the house, hears the music and dancing, and calls one of the slaves and asks what is going on. And notice the slave names the events rightly. Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Now, it is striking to me that no one went to invite the elder son into the house. No, no messenger was sent to him. And that might be a failure on the father's part. It might be a failure on the prodigal's part. Why doesn't the younger son immediately ask to see his older brother? Why doesn't the father immediately send a message to the elder son to come? But I think it's at least possible that this is the same wisdom, the same restraint the father has already shown with his younger son, happening again for the older, allowing him to search himself, allowing him to come to it himself, because this is about moving into responsibility, enabling him to speak the word himself, to, to name himself. And so the young, the older son comes close. He talks to the slave. And I, I again, I think this is telling that he feels more comfortable addressing the slave than he does approaching the father, going into the house itself. And the slave responds rightly, your brother has come, the father, your father has killed the fatted calf. Then the elder son becomes angry and refuses to go in. He's he's incensed by it. The father then comes out and begins to plead with him. And you notice that the father, just in the ways that the father doesn't overreach, doesn't insist, doesn't hunt down the younger son, but is has an eye out for him and runs to him the moment that he sees him. Here, the father doesn't overreach, doesn't hunt down the elder son, but has an eye out for him. And when he sees that he's incensed, that he's, he's caught up in anger, he comes out and begins to plead with him. But the elder son is unpersuaded. He says, all these years I've worked like a slave for you. And I have never disobeyed your command. So, first, again, notice he can speak of his father as father, or at least he speaks to his father, but he doesn't, he's he also thinks of himself as a slave. Right? He also relates as a slave, working like a slave for you. And actually, it's more complicated than that. He doesn't think of himself like a slave, he thinks of himself as someone who is better than a slave and yet acts like one, who should be treated better than a slave, and yet fulfills that function. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. Right? So not only do I not get the fatted calf, I don't get a goat. And I I think there there are callbacks again, not only to the Genesis stories, but also to the sacrificial codes here but when this young the the scapegoat etc but when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes you killed the fatted calf for him so there's this, this so much right packed into these words this son of yours not this brother of mine this son of yours when he came back the one who devoured your property with prostitutes and again, we don't we don't know that that's true, right? That's kept hidden from us. I, I suspect that this is what the elder son fantasized about doing while he was in the field, but would never actually do. He he, his legalism, his moralism, kept him from doing what he imagined all sinners would do if they were free to do it, and and so he he projects that on to the younger son's story. And, and resents the father for having received the younger son so readily. Like there, there should have been a punishment. There should have been a, re- a retaliation, a, a rectification of some kind for what the son did. The son had humiliated the family in some way and had humiliated himself. And so he needed to be further humiliated. Again, think of the pressure the elder son is trying to exert on his father as well as on his brother because of the pressure he feels on himself. Then the father says to him, "Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours." But we had to celebrate and rejoice, and I love that language. We had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. So much here again. I'm not going to unpack it all. I can't unpack it all, but I I, I think there's this this need to celebrate and rejoice that calls back again the old testament reading for the day that this rolling away of shame is is enacted by a rite and is also carried out liturgically they give this place a new name gilgal and that connection of rite and liturgy which of course for christians happens in baptism and every week at the lord's table in ordination but it, I think it also, should, our lives should become liturgical, right? Not only do we have these, these sacramental dimensions to our lives, but all of our lives should be sacramentalized. We, we need liturgies of blessing day to day that grow up around what God is doing in our lives. And, and that is a, a matter of letting the goodness of God, when it breaks into the world, move us to celebration. This is what's happening in Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Go home. Stop. Stop grieving your failures. Go home and rejoice. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That, that we we need to be moved into rhythms of celebration and rejoicing, even in a time like Lent, because it's that that enables us to move into maturity, that rolls the shame away from us, that shifts us away from the pressures of the world into the pressures of God, and that I think is the key right, the spirit's pressure is, is pressure, it is forceful, it is demanding, it is urgent, but it is liberating. And it what it liberates us from are the false or bad pressures, and even the good ones, that can't actually, that come about naturally, but can't actually move us into maturity and into responsibility. And that I think is what the slave is doing. You notice how the father says, we had to rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. That's exactly what the slave says when the elder brother comes near. Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf. He had to do this because he got him back safe and sound. Right? Your, your father has, has killed the fatted calf. He's safe and sound. right? And that... Witness of the slave is a recalling right of the father's words so that you you can see how the the slave has been liturgized into the father's rejoicing over the son's. The son's return and the hope of this older son's return. Even though he's in the field, he's actually further away from intimacy with the father. And it's a much harder trip to make it's a much longer trip from the field to the house than it is from the far country to the house. And another way of saying that is that it's easier to leave home and come back again than it is to be home when you've never left. And so many of us, and here's here's where those of you who are preaching this text, I think, I think you make all those connections easily enough. This is one of the reasons it's so hard to live the faith that's been given to us if that's all we've ever known if we've if we've been broadly but shallowly christianized if we are churchy but not shaped by the spirit of the people of god or not deeply shaped then like these sons we we are slave minded and are expecting things to be given to us that we in fact should be given to others giving to others and that's the shift that has to happen i'll leave you with this thought I, I, I do think we are to be troubled by the fact that the father comes out, but the younger son does not. The younger son stays in the party. So I don't know that he has learned anything yet. His going away and coming back, again, is easier than being at home and having never left. But it's possible to go away and come back and still not have left the immaturity that led you away in the first place. And the younger son should have, I think, come out to his brother. And, and I, I think that's what we're to hope for and to pray for. All right, until next time.